If you have your Bibles, Matthew 14, and we're going to, uh, we're going to begin actually with the reading of the text this morning, uh, the story uh, that is told, and uh, then we're going to kind of divide it up, unpack it. It's uh, kind of an interesting section, very historically driven. Um, it basically just tells the story of a prophet and his death for his faithfulness. And uh, doesn't have a lot of ought or must or should, not a lot of commands that we can draw from it, but definitely something that we can learn in light of God's people. And it's interesting. I had a professor who used to say to me all the time that we need to have, he used to always challenge us, you need to have planned preaching, which means you need to be thinking way far out there. Because if not, whatever the preacher's excited about that day, whatever the preacher's happy about that day, whatever the preacher's angry about that day, then you just get it full force, right? And he said, to keep us in check, one of the best things that we could do is plan it out. And so um, I've, always, I've always done that for my very first time preaching. We thought long term in terms of what we're going through and how we're getting there. And so we've been in, in Matthew's series for a very, very long time. And our, my professor used to challenge me, Dr. Scott would say, and I promise you, God knows how all this is going to work out, right? And so it's very interesting that here we are in this text today where there is this wicked king being confronted by a prophet. And here you have the, the conflict of government powers and the people of faith. And it's very interesting that it just happens to land on a day where we are celebrating the start of this nation. And I just, it's just, it's amazing to just think back and to realize, I don't know how all of that works. I'm not a big fan of coincidence, right? I believe God kind of orchestrates these things, and so it really does give us an opportunity to think and reflect on Matthew 14, beginning in verse 1. At that time, Herod, the Tetrarch, which means one of the four rulers, Herod the Tetrarch, heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John. So now we're going a little bit of a back in time. John is, uh, or Matthew is relating this material about the death of John at a time when John's already been dead. But there is something that is going on in the ministry of Jesus that has sparked the interest of the leader of the land at that time. And so now Matthew is sharing this fact that happened. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's wife or his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he, he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias, his wife, danced before the company, and it pleased Herod. So that he promised with an oath, which, by the way, I don't know if you are kind of connecting the dots, Right? So there's this party that this king is having, and kings have parties with large amounts of what? Alcohol. And there's dancing, there's celebration, and this young lady just, she danced really well, you know what I'm saying? And so Herod is in, and this is an interesting statement, Herod's in such a mood as this woman dances, his answer is, Tell me what you want. Whatever you ask, I'll give it to you. Hmm. 
Prompted by her mother, Herodias, Herod's wife, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was sorry because of his oath and his guests, and he commanded it to be given. Because when you make a statement like that and then you don't follow through, you will lose face. Better to kill a prophet than to look like a fool. Verse 9, and the king was sorry because of the oaths and the guests that he had commanded to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And then she brought it to her mother. And the disciples, his disciples, John's disciples, came and took the body and buried it. And they went and they told Jesus. And that is our text for this morning. The story of Jesus' fame, but if you remember how we ended it last week, Jesus' fame in his hometown did not lead to his acceptance, but to his rejection. And then right after his rejection at Nazareth, Jesus is continuing to do his ministry, and Matthew at this point decides to describe the death of John, who by the way was Jesus' cousin. And the one who proclaimed the bigness of Jesus, the goodness of Jesus, the identity of Jesus. But by the way, when when you go back and you look at his life, his life really isn't just about this generic repentance. But he would actually get very specific in people's lives. and, and, And people don't like that when you get specific. Like it's one thing to talk about sin in general, right? But have you ever felt uncomfortable when people started talking about your sin? Like your struggles? Like, as long as I mention stuff that none of us wrestle with. But no, we have a a difficult one here. And and this is what prophets do. Prophets have a a role to play in God's amazing plan. And I'm I'm, I'm very grateful for our Wednesday night Bible study that we did just this last uh, last semester, uh, kind of January through uh, roughly the, the end of April, where we went through and we looked at Israel's history. And one of the things that I was was reminded of as I prepared and, and, and shared the lessons from the Old Testament, it's this, that in our world, it looks like kings are the rulers. And then everybody else just kind of follows suit. To be king, right? In front of the ship. I'm king of the world. Well, congratulations. You do know what's called the Titanic, right? But he felt like he was what? King of the world. It really doesn't matter if you're king of the world, if you're standing on a sinking ship. And so here is the king of whatever country, but specifically in the Old Testament, the kings of Israel. And the question that constantly comes up is who is going to hold that king accountable? Who who would dare hold a king accountable? After all, kings have the political power. Kings have um, the financial means. Kings have the military means to accomplish their purposes. What is greater than a king? And the answer of the Old Testament is a prophet. A prophet is the one who would dare stand in the presence of the king and say, you are that man. Do you remember that statement? It's actually told about one of our favorite kings, King David. King David, um, great king. King David was in his city, and while all the other kings, it was springtime, while all the other kings went out to war, King David decided to, to just stay home. And it's in the afternoon, he gets up late, 
And he is just overlooking and just being in Jerusalem recently, it was interesting how much right there in the old city, it was very, I could never understand how David is watching somebody uh, bathe. But in the old city and you're, the, the hills of Jerusalem, I mean, I, we saw everybody's rooftop from where we were. And it was really kind of amazing to go, oh, this is what it was probably like. Yeah, there, there it is right there. I mean, the city's just kind of all around you like this, and David's doing his thing, and David gets in his own mind or in his own heart, I want her, and I'm the king, and I will take her. And you know the story. His, his life is almost seemingly unraveling, but good thing he's king, because who's going to hold him accountable? And after he gets another, another man's wife pregnant and then murders her husband, who dares stand in front of him? Nathan the prophet. Nathan the prophet boldly goes before the king and tells this amazing parable about this wicked king. And then he points his finger at David and says, you are that man. And David, with a humble heart, repented. He broke. Because why? Because the prophet dared to speak the truth. And the king humbled himself. Love that story. So who holds people accountable to God? And the answer is the prophet. Well, who is our king in this text today? His name is Herod. And I don't know how well you know the Herods of the Bible, but there are a number of them. This is the first Herod. Herod the Great. So when you get a title like the Great, obviously you're the best of them, right? Maybe he's the best because he's the first. No, he's the best because he really was the greatest, had a very powerful long reign. One of the things that King Herod the Great was known for was building some very amazing structures. If you were to look at a picture of Jerusalem today, you would see what is known as the Temple Mount, this this tabletop area that was built that is just absolutely huge. I think it's like five football fields large. He basically took Mount Moriah and he leveled it all out so that he could put a new temple there. Solomon's temple was destroyed in 586. And Herod the Great came along and wanted to be received as Israel's king. I just want to be received by the people. They they really didn't like him. He was considered more of like a half Jew because of his lineage. He thought maybe he could win the people's hearts over by, by pr- producing for them another great temple. And by the way, this might, this might shock you. It was actually bigger and greater, more impressive than Solomon's temple. And he created the Temple Mount. He actually created something known as the Herodium, which is like his castle on top of a mountain. How many of you know the story of Masada? Do anyone know the historical story of Masada? He made that. He made this amazing fortress where literally you could, you could stay and you could hang out. He, he brought all the wonderful blessings of the fruitful land to the top of this mountain in the middle of the desert. Where there is nothing but desert around but swimming pools on top of a mountain. He made an incredible castle, uh, kind of like a fortress up on the side of uh, a city known as Caesarea. And it was interesting that uh, the the Olympic Games really kind of owe a lot of their, the idea of the Olympics, um, originally in the Greek Olympics, you may not know this, in the original the Greek Olympics, first place was the only ones to get a prize. First place. Everyone else, eh, you didn't get a prize. First, First place. 
okay? He was the first one, Herod the Great, to award a first, a second, and a third. Did you know that? That's Herod the Great. And here he is doing all these amazing things. He is providing for his people, just prosperity. They never really truly accept him. Uh, oh yeah, one other thing about this king. This is the one at the very beginning of the story of Jesus. Most likely murders the children in Bethlehem. This is the one at the same time when Jesus is born. Who is intimidated by this child. That's, that's Herod the Great. Well he dies literally around the, around the same time that Jesus is born. And that's where we get the second Herod. Also known as Herod Antipas. That's, uh, that's this Herod. Um, he's uh, not spoken well of in history. A bit of a scoundrel, a bit of a fox. It's while he was back in Rome that he looked at his kind of half-brother's wife and said, I want you. Fell in love with her. And he secretly divorces his wife. She quietly divorces her husband so that they can arrange to be together. Arrange to be together. And interestingly enough, John the Baptist doesn't get into trouble by Herod for the gospel that he is preaching about Jesus' identity. But he dares to speak that ethical charge that, hey, this is what marriage is supposed to be, and it's wrong for you to just divorce and to remarry. That's what he gets, I mean, it's interesting what he gets into trouble for. You, you want to die on that hill? We, we love to talk like that, don't we? That's just not a hill I want to die on. Like, I just don't want to die on that hill. Well, this is the hill that actually John the Baptist chose to die on. I find that interesting. It looks like what John is trying to do is, is not choose a hill to live or to die on, but just to be faithful in absolutely everything. John is the one who came and he told soldiers exactly how they should be soldiers. He told, he told uh, religious people how they should be religious. He told children how to honor their parents and parents on how they should honor God by raising their children. John spoke to the very small aspects of life and it didn't matter how high up the chain you went. And John confronts this man, and this man has him killed. This is also the man that Jesus goes to during the time of his trial and then ultimate crucifixion. This is the one Jesus refers to as that fox. Herod wanted to see him, thinking that maybe he could see a trick. I want to see one of these miracles. And, and, and Jesus, you know, since I'm king and it's just Jesus, bring him to me so that I can. Jesus won't respond to him, doesn't want to talk to him. But when, when Herod really wants to see Jesus and, hey, could you come do some tricks for the king? Jesus' response, you go tell that fox, which was not a very nice term. Herod Antipas. The next Herod that we actually read of in the Bible is actually Herod Agrippa I. In this long line of Herods, not only do you have Herod the Great, wonderful architecture, wonderful buildings, um, who also killed the children in Bethlehem, but then you have Herod Antipas, who was involved in the death of John the Baptist particularly, and was also very much against Jesus, does, has, does no interest in rescuing him, far more interested in his own means and in his own ability to rule over the people, to try to keep a peace so that he can keep his stuff. Herod Agrippa I is the one who in Acts chapter 12 murders the apostle James, John's brother. 
And then shortly after that, it's kind of an interesting, his demise was rather strange. Luke records that because he received glory, he liked to dress up in this huge shiny suit. And one day he is speaking before these people and he has some kind of attack. History records, Luke records that the Lord struck him down for being proud. And Herod Agrippa I dies shortly thereafter. And then we have one other Herod that is actually found in the Bible from this family. So Herod Antipas is Herod the great son. Herod Agrippa I is actually a grandson. And then Herod Agrippa II is actually another grandson. And he is the one, the last one that we read about in the Bible, who is the one that meets before uh, the Apostle Paul is sent to Rome. Herod Agrippa meets with him in Acts chapter 26. Paul has said um, in Jerusalem, I, I appeal to Caesar. And he is taken up to Caesarea, where Herod the Great had built this amazing palace um, and had an opportunity actually to sit in the room where Paul gave his defense before Herod Agrippa II. And Herod Agrippa says to him, you know, I probably would have let you go, but since you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. And and those are the, the great four Herods. The one that we're dealing with today is Herod Antipas. And it's interesting that in this long family line of kings... Each one of them, in some way or another, has a prophet who rises up and speaks to them. Not afraid at all in terms of what it might cost them. It's interesting that we we, we know these Herods kind of just very loosely. Maybe some of you are going, wow, I never realized exactly how many there were, and I didn't even know the connections But it's interesting that especially on a day when you and I get to to stop and to reflect on the king of all kings, what what drives them, what, what motivates them in the risk of adversity, in the risk of difficulty, is a recognition of who is the one who is really in charge. John the Baptist first appears on the scene. If you have your Bibles, I want you to just turn there to take a look at it. John the Baptist, the first time we hear from him in Matthew's gospel is Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, so very early in the story, right after Herod the Great, by the way, has killed the children, the next story that we read about is John the Baptist who arrives on the scene and there is great popularity. Why? Because John is giving the message to the people about this coming kingdom. Now, you got to realize, like in in this very politically charged climate, when anybody who would dare to speak as though a kingdom was coming and a new king could possibly be here, that there was great fear that would kind of reside in the hearts of the ones who thought they had the ruling power. That in the past, Israel's history has actually been, um, there's a number of examples where people have claimed to be a king and have risen up through the power and have taken over and killed the king and assumed power. And it is in this context that John the Baptist comes and he is talking about this new kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is now here and you need to prepare your hearts and your minds. And so what you actually see in the story of 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 Matthew's gospel is this worldly kingdom and this heavenly kingdom colliding, like smashing into one another. And what's interesting, all through the life of these Herods, you see fear, you see aggression, you see violence. And on the other side of that, what you actually see is faithfulness, consistency, and trust 
that it doesn't really matter who pretends to be king, whether that be in Caesarea or in Jerusalem or on the Herodium or at Masada. It doesn't really matter who who pretends to be king, but they have an ability to see beyond, beyond the physical, beyond what is happening all around us, and they know that God has an alternative plan, an alternative way, an alternative uh, lifestyle, an alternative way of, of, of literally recognizing what it means to live in this world as a follower of God. And so John comes, and he's not trying to pick a fight with Herod Antipas, but if that's where the fight goes, John is more than glad to speak the truth. He's dressed in a different way. John, John uh, comes and he is, is speaking like the prophets of old, just like the Old Testament promised that he would. Now the last time, and we don't hear a lot about John, the last time that we actually hear from John is in Matthew chapter 11. Turn there. Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. This is a story where Matthew records that John is actually put in prison, where John begins to speak out against Herod Antipas, specifically, where Herod begins to call the divorce that he went through, uh, the remarriage to his, uh, to his brother's wife. He calls that as sin, and in, in the end, he is arrested for that. And it's in the middle of that arrest, and preached this just a number of months ago, John asks this amazing question. Remember this? John sends his disciples to Jesus while he is in prison, and he asks, Jesus, are, are, are we... Are we seeing in you the king? Are we seeing in you the coming of the kingdom? Or should we be looking for somebody else? Because I think what John is ultimately wrestling with is that his ministry and his life, his uh, coats of camel hair, the locust that he is eating, is, and the message that he is preaching is very different than Jesus' message. And he sees not only a collision between the political day of his age and, and his message of preaching, he almost sees a clash of kingdoms between Jesus and him. And Jesus answers the amazing question. He, and, and, and when you really look at it, Jesus says, yes, John, I am the one. I am the one. But it doesn't seem to matter what God does. People, by our nature, are unbelievably fickle. And what Jesus does is he blends together within these two what appear to be opposing ministries, Jesus coming and celebrating and going to feasts and making wine. And John in the desert, dressed like a hobo, barely making meager existence. One in prison, the other one, crowds following. Which one is faithful? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. Matthew chapter 11, verses 18 and 19, Jesus puts it this way. As he is describing two lives or two lifestyles, but only one ministry. For John came, Jesus speaking, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he is a demon. Look at him. He's not dressed right. He's not acting right. I mean, what, the way that he is acting just doesn't make sense. He is so bizarre. He is so different. He has a demon, and then the Son of Man, Jesus speaking about himself, came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Basically, what Jesus is pointing to is that when the messengers of God look like John the Baptist, we, we, we think they're crazy. And when the messengers come along and, and they look like Jesus, 
hey, it's a good time. Let's celebrate God's goodness. We've got a reason to not like them as well. And I love this last line here. I want to really focus on this. He says this, yet wisdom is justified. Wisdom is proved right by her children. Which basically means this. It's a little bit of a challenge to the audience. It's a little bit of a challenge to say, can you see through the difference between these two people who seem to be going in different directions, who seem to have a different lot in life? Can you see that actually the two of them are not going to collide into one another, but are actually both under the complete direction of God? Can you see that? Can you see that God is bigger, that God is greater than just what that outside appearance actually looks like? Don't be deceived into what you see with your eyes. There is something much deeper, there is something much more powerful that is actually going on. And Jesus is revealing to his people that you need to see with eyes of faith what is happening. Now, how does this apply to us? How does this apply to us? Are, are you asking, um, are these about different kinds of prophets and how do we recognize prophets? Maybe. But what I find very interesting in just the normal comings and goings of our lives is how much we play a very similar game that John played, which is, like God, as I look at the circumstances that are going on around me, and I notice that not everybody has to go through what I have to go through, is something broken? You ever been there? You ever been in a situation where your lot in life seems radically different than someone else's lot in life? Have you ever compared your gifts and abilities to someone else and wondered why? Like, why did I not get what they get? Why did I, why do I not have what they have? What, what's wrong with me? What have I done wrong? Have you ever looked at the circumstances of your life? I, I, I tell people all the time when they are initially, originally getting married and they're in their first few years of marriage, I said, listen, it seems to be pretty common that when you are going through marriage and first couple of years you're going, I don't think we want a baby now, I don't think we want a baby now. And then when you want to have a baby, it seems like in our minds it takes forever to get one. And I'll never forget, there was a year where Andrew and I were trying to have a child and it seemed like everyone else was having one. And every time there was this reminder, I remember thinking, why? Oh yeah, did you hear so-and-so? She's only 16 and she got pregnant. And we're going, seriously? You ever done that? And I work just as hard as they do and why am I getting overlooked for the promotion? Like, I, I'm a better parent than them. Why aren't they struggling with what I struggle with? And we find ourselves measuring ourselves by the circumstances that we are going through in life and the way other people are going through life and we recognize there is a discrepancy. Why? And then we play these games in our head. And, and simple answers never work in complicated life situations. Simple answers never really solve. Why is it that there seems to be this incongruity when it comes to how God gives his blessings? If I were to say to you that John was a prophet loved by God and cared for by God, and God demonstrated this by allowing him to be beheaded because a rather um, seductive dancing girl 
uh, enticed her drunk uncle. Anybody, could anybody figure that one out on their own? Or those don't even match. Only in the economy of God do we actually see this powerful statement, wisdom is proved right by her children. You don't weigh the decisions that you are making on whether or not this feels right now or this seems to be right now, but what has God already spoken? See, John had a choice to make. I can either risk my life by calling this thing which is clearly wrong, wrong, or I can just say nothing and hopefully ride it out. But actually John realizes that I'm not going to measure things by the immediacy of my circumstances, but by the long-term word of God. And so John the prophet speaks. But that doesn't mean that there aren't just painful things that happen to us in life. I love to remind people that it's at moments like this. That's why I love this. Like July 4th is a time, I was having a conversation with somebody recently. Um, I, I tease the staff quite often. Um, it has nothing to do with the fact that I'm Canadian, but uh, uh, I'll, I, I, I keep forgetting that we have these Mondays off, okay? And so I'll hear something, and hey, by the way, we're gonna close the office on Monday because it's July 4th. And I'm like, why? And they, they say, well, because it's July 4th. And I, listen, I get it. I get it. I'm like, wait a second here, though. See if I can understand this right. So there are people who died for us so that we can take the day off and eat hot dogs. Like, there are people, literally, that, I mean, do you think George Washington took July 4th off? You think all those people that sacrificed? It's amazing how, in our culture, the sacrifice of others gives us a holiday. <laughs> a holiday. And that's what happens when all of a sudden the, the power of the moment gets reduced to just nostalgia. Just nostalgia. And I love the power of this moment. Just the complexity of this moment. There's really nothing even to celebrate. Look at how, look at how Matthew records this. Look at verse 13. And I have skipped this verse for so long, failing to recognize the, just the depth of despair. We do know that when, when Lazarus was dead, Jesus wept. But I find this very interesting. In Matthew 14, verse 3, Matthew records, Now when Jesus heard this, that his cousin was beheaded, that a fellow prophet was beheaded, when Matthew heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. That's how it ends. Jesus just needs to get away. Like, I, I know it's easy for us to get caught up and, oh, but you don't understand, it's fireworks. But in the midst of it, July 4th, right, during the, the Revolutionary War, we don't even know if we can celebrate yet. Like, we just declared this. There are still lives to be sacrificed. There is still blood, sweat, and tears. There is still this risk that we may not, we may have signed not the wonderful Declaration of Independence. We may have signed our death warrants, and they're in the middle of it. I mean, it's easy for us to celebrate hundreds of years later. I like to think about the time when, when it was still at risk and still on the line, and Jesus is in the middle of it in, in, in Matthew 14. John is dead. And all Matthew records is in the middle of this, he just needs to get away. I just need to get away. 
I can think of a number of things. The Bible really doesn't tell us what he thinks about. I, he has to be thinking John's dead and just the loss of that. He has to be thinking, and my death is upcoming. My death is upcoming. It's interesting that in Matthew 4, 12 is when we actually hear the first time that John had been arrested. Way back, Matthew 4, 12. And listen to how, listen to how Matthew records what Jesus did there. Matthew 4, 12. And now when he, Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to the Galilee. I just, I just need to be somewhere. I need, to, I, need, I need to get ready. I need to focus. I need to know. And, and what's interesting is, is if Jesus' ministry began um, at a wedding, um, making wine, and Jesus was really, really popular, that wasn't going to be his whole ministry. What Jesus knew was that the road ahead for him was going to be even more tragic, even more costly, even more difficulty than John ever had. And it's at times like this that it is so good for us to be grateful for all the things that God has done. But let's never lose sight of the fact that we have been invited by him to be a part of this. That especially as we collide as, as, as people who have a responsibility living at this time in this place, to not only celebrate what we have on July 4th and as Christians, to celebrate what God has provided for us on July 4th, is there not also a responsibility? It's one thing to say, isn't it great to be free? Like, isn't it wonderful to have this incredible freedom? A freedom that most of us use to not say very much about who Jesus Christ is. A freedom where the majority of us just use it so that we can continue to make our own little kingdoms and hope and pray that the political and economic forces around us just will continue to provide for us. Like there, there's something actually that is humbling at moments like this, on days like this, to recognize that it is God who is great, and it is God who is good, and it is God who provides. And in the moments like this, when we look at uh, just the, the destiny, the, the, the final collision of those who would dare stand up and speak the truth in moments like this, that there is a cost not just to be appreciated, but there is a cost to give. There's still a price to be paid. Just last week, I had an opportunity to just, got a call from the hospital. Hey, we've got a young couple down here and we'd like you to come and meet with them. They're struggling with something. And I went there and it was a young man who had served over in Iraq for a number of years and he was just struggling with lots of different things. And it was just good. I can just see how God was lining all these things up. And I, in the middle of this conversation, I just got to say to him, hey, listen, I mean, I'm a military kid. Um, I just, I know the sacrifice. I just can't imagine what you've seen. And I just want to say thank you to, for your service. And it's so easy for me to just be thankful and yet not to recognize that it's in moments like this that we need to see, and it really is this large collage of responsibilities that we have to our families and to our societies, to our cities, to our states, to our nation, but ultimately to our God. 
And not just worrying about what the cost would be to me. And not just worrying, well, how come they have it better than me? But to recognize that each one of us has been given a task and a responsibility. And by the grace of God, the strength to see it through. One of my favorite hymn writers, Charles Wesley, says this. And I had to go back and actually chase down who said it. Because I had a professor who used to say it all the time. And it was a great reminder to me as I was spending a lot of years of my life wondering how come my family's had it worse than so-and-so and not as good as so-and-so. I never, by the way, wonder why my family's had it better than anybody. I always wonder why my family's had it so hard. And Charles Wesley says this, God buries his workmen, but then carries on his work. And I think that's what we see in, John four, or in Matthew 14, 13. At the time of John the Baptist is done, he came to prepare the way for Jesus, and now Jesus is the one who is going to continue and fulfill this mission. Jesus is the one that it really is all about anyway, and what we see is this, not just this handing off of the guard, but what we see is this profound statement where Jesus retreats into the desert to be with God, to reflect on all that is happening around him, and then finish the work that has been given to him. I love that statement, God buries his workmen and then carries on his work. And it's amazing to me that God would dare to grant to us the opportunity to be a part of this. Why are we born at this time? Why are we born in this place? Why have we been given these amazing freedoms? If there is no coincidence, then God is orchestrating this. And there is truly a time to be, to be grateful and a time to celebrate, and then there is a time to be responsible. There's a time to stop asking why me and recognize for a reason beyond my ability to understand, but I have been given these people to to share the gospel with. I've been given these people to provide and protect. I've been given this context to, to, to declare the bigness and the greatness of God. See, I, I think that one of the concerns that I have regarding the church is that we so know how to complain about that which is going wrong that we fail to see the responsibility that still lies ahead for us in where we need to go. John the Baptist wasn't just complaining, oh, Herod Antipas, he's the worst. Can you believe we got Herod Antipas as our king? He's terrible. No, John rises up and speaks to the occasion. And I really think that the more time we spend just passively celebrating, passively being grateful, the more likely we can be to miss incredible opportunities to speak truth to a society that is broken, to a society that embraces social change, not even thinking whether or not that change is somehow God-honoring or in the way that God has designed us to be. The Apostle Paul, who met before the last Herod, actually said this, and I pray that this is our challenge on days like today, with texts like today's. Paul says this, Acts chapter 20, verse 24. But I do not account my life as of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. And that's what each of us have been given. 
We have been given a ministry. We are part of a larger story where each of us in different places and with different responsibilities have been given the opportunity and the freedom, not just to celebrate our freedom, but to use that for God's purposes. We have been given the strength and the ability to speak up and to confront everyone in the midst of brokenness and actually even the the freedom and the joy to be confronted ourselves. That what John the Baptist teaches us, what Jesus ultimately teaches us, is that through Jesus, the one who is the Messiah, you and I have a freedom, you and I have a responsibility that is not just an idea, but is God's ultimate plan of salvation and redemption for the world. And you and I have a part to play in that great story. And stories like Matthew 14 remind me that I don't know exactly how it's going to go for all of us. I don't know if some of us are going to have a much more difficult road, a much more difficult task. No, wisdom will be proved right by our children. But I do know this, and I do believe this, is that God will give each and every one of us the strength necessary to not just passively celebrate, but with great responsibility to engage a world that needs to hear the truth about Jesus and to see that truth lived out in us. Let's pray. So God, I thank you for John and for his wonderful witness, but more than that for Jesus, for without Jesus, John's life was wasted. He could have done something so much better with his life if it wasn't for the fact that Jesus was in fact the Messiah. I thank you for his example. I thank you for uh, the truth of his journey. And I thank you most of all for the Savior that he spoke about. And God, as we truly do, and I get taken time off and celebrating, I pray that we do more than just passively celebrate, but that God, as, as people who believe in you and, and know the reality of you, that especially at this time of year, um, at, at a, in a year like this, with so much politically charged craziness, that we would speak the truth with grace and trust and hope that God, we remember that you are our rock, that you are our provider, that you are our strength. And then in that sense, be the ones who really know how to both celebrate and be profoundly aware of the responsibility that has been given to us. Father, what an incredible time for your church to rise up and to live out their hope in you. Father, teach us to be grateful and more than. It's in Jesus' name we hopefully pray. Amen.